by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the Pause Platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and today I am delighted to welcome Dr. Kirsten Anderson Hansen, who is the head of training and research at Fjordenbelt and the University of Southern Denmark's Marine Biological Research Center in Kedemina, Denmark. And Kirsten is also the co-chair for the training committee at the Danish Association for Zoos and aquariums, DASA, as well as the expert advisor for the Animal Training Working Group and a member of the Animal Welfare Working Group at the European Associations of Zoos and Aquariums, EASA. Welcome, Kirsten. Thank you. Yes. Pleasure to be here. Yes, absolutely. Very much looking forward. And just before we hit the record button, we were saying it's next year, it will be in 2022 for those listening. It will be 25 years ago that you and I started working together at the Jordan Belt in Denmark. Crazy. Yeah, we just that crazy away. winter. Yeah. <laughs> How old we are. Anyway, <laughs> we always love to kick off the podcast with a short story, like an early story of you and an animal. So if you want to share that with you, that would be great. Yeah, I this was actually really hard for me because um, I think uh, animals have just always been a part of my life. So it was like, okay, where do I choose? And I think the one that really that I can think of is just the reason why I became in in my way a marine biologist and studying marine mammals was just thir- when I was 13, I was on a bike trip in the San Juan Islands off the Washington coast and just saw killer whales for the very first time live as they swam past us as we were on our bikes. And I just remember it was like sur- surreal. I just couldn't believe that these animals were real. Um, I, you know, I had always seen videos and, and things of, of marine mammals, but had, I think growing up in Colorado, which is a landlocked state and, and has no ocean, I, the, the thought of ever seeing them was just unbelievable. And I think that actually that I still is, is burned in my mind, changed the rest of my life and my, the direction and the decisions I made from that point on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is for sure a magical area, the San Juan Islands and, and killer whales are pretty surreal. Yeah, uh, they are. They're yeah. amazing. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So you just mentioned you studied marine biology. So perhaps you can talk to us a little bit you know, where you studied and maybe some of the things that you did during your studies. Yeah. And I mean, as I said, that that really did change it. I think from that point on, um, growing up, even though I was in Colorado, my decision was always that I wanted to be a marine biologist. I wanted to be able to see these animals closer and see what they were actually for animals. I was uh, fortunate enough during my uh, junior year in high school that my mother moved us to Washington State from Colorado. And so suddenly we were on the water. And, and in high school, one of the classes we could take was marine biology. And I, I just remember just like, it was unbelievable for me that somebody could take a marine biology course in, in high school. So I, of course, took that and, and then worked very hard to become my teacher's pet. <laughs> and he helped me a lot in, in directions on where to go for, for college. So I was, uh, I ended up going to the University of California in Santa Cruz uh, to do my bachelor, which of course was an amazing experience. Um, especially because that is where they have the uh, Long Marine Lab, which is the research facility with marine mammals, um, where I started just by actually just uh, scrubbing buckets. You know, I just wanted to be there. Um, And as also as a research assistant, they were doing different research projects, behavioral projects. I had the shift from midnight to four in the morning, uh, you know, doing these, but I didn't even care. You know, it was like sitting there watching these animals was just unbelievable at this time it was terciops you know bottlenose dolphins and then pacific white-sided dolphins so um and i stayed there and 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 volunteered during the duration of my undergrad um where i began learning more and more about the training that was happening as i worked as a volunteer um and became more and more involved in that aspect of how using animal training and operant conditioning how you actually really communicate with animals 
Um, and so when I finished and got my bachelor degree, it was actually that that I really chose um, and ended up following a couple of the animals that had been at Long Marine Lab. And they went to Shedd Aquarium in Chicago um, and went to Shedd um, to learn more. Um, and that was with uh, Lisa Takaki and Ken Ramirez. So, um, and, and there, I mean, we had beluga whales, Pacific white-sided dolphins, sea otters, penguins, seals. Um, and and it, was, it was just amazing the amount of knowledge that was absorbed in such a short, and then with, with Ken and Lisa as my mentors, it was, it was like getting a whole other education in one. Um, and, um, and that was it. That was what paved the road uh, for the rest of my life. And then, you know, in uh, 1997, there I was in a, I'm at a conference in Baltimore where this uh, woman named Sabrina Brando was holding a, a talk about porpoises at this facility that had just opened up in Denmark. And um, I'd actually, do you remember, I missed your talk. And somebody said, oh, you should really see this talk. And so I found you in a coffee break and was like, I was told I really need to see your talk. Can we, can I see it? And then, um, and then the idea, the wonderful thing about Fjord and Belt that really I loved was the idea of, of working with marine mammals back at like a research setup. And that's really what, what the Fjord and Belt was. It was the purpose of the, the purpose of the animals they, being there was conservation biology. And I had missed that when, when working at, at, um, at Shed Aquarium a bit. And so, um, and then that, that really did it, you know, then I, and you guys were actually looking for somebody else. And I applied and moved from downtown to Chicago of 6 million people to downtown Catamina with 3000 people on February and <laughs> the Arctic winter. So <laughs> I was sure I'd last a month, but you know, now I've been here for almost what, 25 years. So. <laughs> yes, it was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. I still remember one of the first comments was, from Genevieve de Port, Dr. Genevieve de Port, yeah. who said, and I was with my back to the window, and she said, I think a blind person just walked into our parking lot. <laughs> and it was you with your dog, and of course, wearing these massive, really big sunglasses, you know, yep. because it was quite uh, quite bright, and mm -hmm. uh, carrying your mug. So uh, I look like a blind with coffee and I was like what oh no that's Kirsten and that's yeah your first day that was just wonderful yeah. yeah so actually before we move to talk more about uh, conservation biology and and you know the animals at Fjord and Belt and your PhD can you talk to us a little bit more about working at Shed with all the animals like what are, were some of the activities and specifically also what in what ways did you use training to care for the animals and and promote their well-being yeah, the, the focus at Shed has always been, and that was that something that also was that I really enjoyed. I mean, the focus, the priority was, of course, animal welfare. So training the animals to be comfortable in the world that they live in. And, and just like as children are in school to learn how to end with their parents, to learn how to live in society, um, that was really how the training was there. It was what can we do to make the animals more comfortable? And then what's um, and then, of course, training the animals to cooperate in their own health care. So voluntary medical behaviors, of course, was the major priority, especially with marine mammals. Um, and then, the, and then the, the next was public education. So it was presentations. Of course, we did presentations and, and we did, if you say, quote, shows, but the shows were always based on natural behaviors of the animals. Um, and what was triggered by the natural behaviors were, you know, using methods like scanning and capturing. So you really were capturing each animal's individual personality, finding behaviors that they enjoyed doing, finding behaviors that they were creative in doing, um, and using these to educate the public about, about, about the beauty of these animals. Wow. Yes, wonderful, wonderful. And you already mentioned you have had an interest in training and research, you know, from the get-go. Mm -hmm. And can you talk to us a little bit about your master's and, um, and the work that you did um, for that specifically? Well, for my master's, I actually didn't do any training. It was actually a bioacoustics um, project where it was learning the mimicry of beluga whales. 
um, because they are very acoustic. They're known as the canaries of the sea and they're, they're very, very plastic in their acoustic abilities. And they produce a huge variety of sounds, both in air and underwater. Um, and it was to see their ability to mimic sounds. If they're, if they're, if certain things are played back um, to them, how long time does it take before they actually mimic that sound? So, so that was my master's. Um, I think, and, and that didn't of course have any training, but my PhD required quite a bit of training. And the, the PhD was, um, it was training a great cormorant, which is um, an amazing marine bird um, to do an underwater hearing test. And, and this was basically just like we would do if we went to the ear doctor, teaching him to say yes, you know, responding to a specific cue to say, yes, I hear that sound or no, I do not hear that sound. Um, and having him do this while he's underwater. Um, and that was, that was a huge challenge. I mean, I was very lucky that I ended up with an animal that was quite unique. I, I didn't realize how unique he was until since then I've spent the last five years trying to train other birds to do the same thing and have not had the same success, <laughs> but, um, um, but really that, and I think the, the wonderful thing about that training was when it, it was the first time I was going to be training an animal for this type of behavior and, and, or a, a bird anyway, um, I had trained seals and, and other animals for this type of behavior and it's expected for marine animals or other animals. But um, with birds, there's just a very different approach traditionally in training animal in training birds for hearing tests. And it's basically considered that it's not possible to get them to voluntarily do it, that you have to force them to do it through food deprivation and punishment. Um, and I wasn't aware of this being a naive marine mammal trainer. I was like, well, we'll just train it just like we train all the other marine mammals. And I remember, uh, a researcher, a very prominent researcher, probably the king of bioacoustics and birds really coming and visiting the lab. And I was explaining to him what we were doing and he started laughing and he said, you will never, ever get a bird to do that. And, and I just remember thinking, I don't know why. And he said, you will never get him to voluntarily do it. You will have to restrain his food. You will have to do all, um, do all of these parameters of restricting food, of punishing, of, you know, using a lot of positive punishment. And, um, and I just thought, well, I, I refuse to do that. So we were going to have to try it in using positive reinforcement. And, and we did, and we, we, we got this animal to, you know, voluntarily swim down to a setup where he had to stick his head through a PVC tube and, and there was a speaker there and he had to listen to see if there was sound played. And if sound was played, he came out of the setup and went over and touched a red target to tell us that he heard it. And if he didn't hear it, he stayed in the setup until the trial of four seconds was over. Um, and we did this and, and of course, and we did this completely with training him. He was never on a restricted diet. He was always fed ad libitum, um, being a Marine bird living in a cold environment. It was very important that he got all the food he needed all the time, uh, for his welfare. And, but we made it fun for him. We made it a challenge. It was a problem solving task. It was something that was interesting and motivating for him. And, um, and we ended up uh, because the whole important thing of this project was that it was really to prove that birds could hear underwater because the general concept is that birds cannot hear underwater because they have an ear that's built for air and that um and when we have so much regulation regarding the effects of underwater noise on marine animals we have them for marine mammals we have them for fish we even have them for crustaceans but we have nothing for birds because it's considered that they they don't hear underwater and, um, and we ended up finding out that these birds do hear underwater and they hear and the frequencies that they hear, they are just as sensitive underwater hearing as seals and porpoises, the other experts of underwater hearing. So this had a huge effect. Um, and I think one of the interesting things that really was when we went to go publish this data, the manuscript was actually rejected the first time because we didn't use punishment because that was standard operating procedure. And because we didn't use punishment, we couldn't prove that he was actually doing the task. Um, and um, that shocked me. I mean, I was devastated that that, that, that was the requirement. And um, so, but we were very, uh, it, was, it was relatively easy to prove to them that, that the way we had set it up, that the animal was understanding his control and was answering the correct question. 
Um, and then we were finally able to publish this data, which has had a, a kind of bit of dramatic effect on on um, on on the, on the welfare of marine birds. Since seventy five percent of marine birds are currently threatened, this has become a very very big subject. Not just with with our little lab, but the the U.S. military is very interested in it. They want to make sure that their sonars are not endangering animals. And there, and there, and so now a lot of money has been put into investigating other bird species. Um, and we have been in Iceland and in different places doing the same, doing you know, researching these animals to make sure um, at uh, where are their hearing ranges and where do we need to be careful. So, sorry, that was a bit of a long answer. Oh, that's a wonderful answer. We'll definitely also with the podcast, we'll have a link, you know, because it hit the news. It hit the news. Yeah, you know, National Geographic and others. And it's a big deal because like you say, you know, obviously you've talked about using training, you know, positive reinforcement, getting the animals, making it fun, getting them, you know, making sure their well-being is is good throughout and they want to do it. But you're also talking about wild, the welfare of animals in the wild. So these sorts of data uh, and these sorts of publications have massive implications on policy and regulation. So it's wonderful, you know, how animals in our care and through the training and collaborations with people like you and others, you know, can have such an impact on uh, on animals also in the wild. Yeah, that's our hope anyway. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more, like, who is this wonderful cormoran? And oh, this wonderful now? cormoran. And, you know, it's a beautiful story because his name is Loke. Um, and he is, um, he was wild born, actually and 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 um was brought to actually before i i started working on my phd i was working at a zoo also here in denmark where i had been there for 10 years and that's how i started it was after working in the marine mammal world and then moving to a zoo and finding out how they manage animals in zoos i was uh shocked and we have to remember that this was also 25 years ago so that um so um so that's where all of my work with the Danish Association of Zoos and Aquariums and the European Association of Zoos and Aquariums started because it was like, we could be doing this so much better using training and using proper behavioral management because the, the standard way of managing animals at this point was either moving them to a different zoo if there was a problem or killing them, really. It was standard to just euthanize an animal if there was any issue. So, um, so that really opened my eyes to a lot of things. But while I was working there, this man drove up in his car and he had a cormorant in the back of his car that he was like, this cormorant has gotten lost. It's landed in my backyard. And, um, and so we, we took it in um, because actually at that point, my, my uh, supervisor here, Magnus Wahlberg, he uh, had been looking, he had been asking all of us if anybody had any connections for cormorants because he had really wanted to work with them. So we called him and said that we had this bird um, and did he want him? And he was like, yes. So he, uh, he came in and got him. And then, um, and then we, uh, and then about a year later, I ended up working here. It was all kind of, and so then I started training Loka for this and, and Loka was just, just a unique, I mean, his, his, I wish I could show you the video of the, when he would do these behaviors because he loved talking through his trials. He loved, the, the the energy and watching an animal just get so motivated to do a task. And that is, I think, really, when you're looking at research, you want the animal motivated to do the task. And that's why I never have any question regarding the data that we have, because every time I would start a trial, you would see his eyes light up, he would get really quiet, and he would be listening so hard to see if there was a sound. And as opposed to an animal that is under any kind of biological stress, they're probably not, there's a lot of internal noise going on there and there's, they're not able to really focus on the task itself, which makes it wonder what is the value of all this other data that we have on and when we are putting animals, we're, you know, they're being presented with a lot of other biological stressors while at the same time, we're supposed to be making reliable data. So, but Loka was, um, when we finished with him, you know, we had applied for uh, other projects and we, we unfortunately didn't get the funding. So um, with our relationship with the zoos, I had uh, sent him, um, I had been able to find another zoo here in Denmark that was willing to take care of him until we could have a, a project ready for him in the future. And, um, and so he, he went there. And I, what was really interesting was they didn't do any training with him for a year and a half. And I didn't see him for that year and a half. 
Um, he was in a much bigger exhibit and he could hang out with other birds. And, and that was the better thing for him. Um, but I finally went up and saw him. And, and what was absolutely amazing was when they say that birds are not smart um, and don't have any memory because I came into the exhibit and I called his name and he kind of looked at me and then I called his name again. And then suddenly he turned around and flew over to my feet and started making all these sounds that he did when you knew he was really excited. And so then I asked them if they had any fish um, and they came with this bin. And after a year and a half of nobody training him, nobody doing anything, he did every behavior he had ever been trained for. And that was, that was, I cried through the entire session because I just could not believe this animal could do that. And, um, and so now it's made it even more relevant that we're really looking for projects that we can do with him in a much, in a much bigger and broader, you know, prospect because he is so cool. Yeah, it's very, very cool. And uh, I can already see, you know, all the research questions <laughs> bubbling out of your head. You know, the, there's, there's so much uh, here. Um, and, and I think also, you know, this, this constant, like, how do we provide the best care for the animals, the best well-being for the animals, and also recognizing that, you know, we're doing the things to the best of our abilities, and sometimes there's even better things, and, you know, making choices, and how do we then organize environments in our research, so it's this constant dynamic Yes. Uh, that's just wonderful. And uh, before we move to like talking more about seals and porpoises, you you work with uh, a lot of different animals there. Can you talk to us also a little bit about the puffins? Because they are so cool too. Yeah, they are. They are. And they were ones that we were actually, you know, hoping to work with after the, the, the project with the cormorants. Um, but that hasn't been possible. So since then, we, now we've, we've been working with the common murs, which is a, a similar bird. Um, and so the, the puffins we did in the wild, and um, basically this was not also not actually training, but our goal was is to use a different type of hearing test. And this is basically where um, it's called um, auditory, uh, um, auditory brain response. So basically you have small electrodes, very, very small electrodes that are set in just below the surface of the skin. And then you play sounds to the animal and then it measures the brain waves to see if they've actually received the, the sound. And this should be reflective of if, they've, if your brain wave is reacting to the sound, that means you hear it. So it's another way of being able to do a hearing test without training the animal per se. But to do this, it requires putting the animal under so that it's sleeping, so that it's behaviorally quiet and its brain is quiet. So um, this has never been done in the field. And um, every time, especially with birds, when it's been done in the lab, it also means and has required regarding the permits that the birds get euthanized afterwards. Um, so our goal was to be able to go out to the field and test puffins in the field using this method um, and then be able to re-release them afterwards so that we could actually be testing them, but at the same time, um, make welfare for the populations. So, um, so basically, uh, and that's what we did. Um, we went out and, um, and it's, it's a learning process. We had, we had been of course, very thorough in making sure what kind of medication to put and youth, what kind of, um, medicines to make sure that we were not putting too much in the animal and it's a little tiny bird i mean they weigh they weigh you know 500 grams so they're very little so we have to be very careful and also making sure that their their temperature was maintained warm but also cold enough since they're used to being very cold so um and so we and this was to be used regarding in cooperation with the data that we had from our cormorant who had done a as we say a behavioral hearing test he had been trained to do this test um, and, um, and so, and then that really worked out. So from this, the puffins, and then also a common murmur, we were actually able to test the hearing of wild birds, um, and, and then be able to release them in the wild. And that was, that was really great. And that, that project continued for three years with great success. Yeah. That's just wonderful. Also, because the examples are, we can, you know, do projects with animals in the wild, do it safely, and they don't have to die for it. Yeah. And also, um, I remember working in research labs with um, pigeons, and they would weigh the pigeons by picking them up and putting them upside down yes. in, a, 
in a little container and then put them on a scale. And, uh, and I was like looking at that going, what? And people uh, said, but that's how pigeons are weighed. And, and like you mentioned earlier also about the food restrictions or, or sometimes it's, it's uh, water restrictions. You know, if you look at, you know, the standing operating procedures or even publications, it's not even written there anymore because that's just how everybody weighs pigeons, right? So whether it's how do we refine the methods in studying the animals in the wild or how do we refine you know, collaborations and doing things with animals because they want to uh, can make such differences and it sets the tone for a different relationship with animals uh, throughout. Yeah. So that's really, it's really exciting. Very true. And I think, I think as you saw, you've been there, you're an, you know, an animal husbandry expert and and I think that was one of the things that they really prioritized on this trip was if it came down to it, they could have done this research without me, but they really prioritized having an animal husbandry person there, somebody who's used to monitoring behavior, who is used to taking care of animals and making sure their welfare is in place. And being able to say that that person was the one that said, now we stop or no, it's okay to continue. Um, and I think that was also had a lot to do with the success of the project was that they prior, they really prioritized the animal's welfare. And that was nice by having expert animal husbandry people there. Yes, exactly. And that's a perfect segue into uh, one of you know, our first collaborations with regards to research training was, of course, and, and all of them actually are very care and welfare heavy. Uh, but uh, we have been organizing these research training seminars for many years now, and where it is, you know, also including the talks about how do researchers, experts, animal care professionals, how does how does everybody work together? And mm-hmm. so uh, perhaps you could talk to us a little bit about how you do that where you work, or you know, in general. Yeah, I think that is, and I, you know, we have a lot of people coming saying, you know, how do you guys work it? Um, and I think it takes a lot. I think, I mean, Sabrina, you, you and I, we definitely know the struggles we had in the beginning and trying to convince researchers that, no, we're not going to do that because that's not good for the animal. <laughs> and you're smiling because, you know, <laughs> we've, we've had these debates. Um, and I think um, because when it came down to it, a lot of people that, you know, unless you really understand behavior, um, don't necessarily understand what types of, of projects can affect them. So I, I think I think it's definitely something if, if we go back in time that was very difficult. I mean, we uh, we had our struggles in the beginning and being able to fight basically for the rights of the animals as we were doing research and really putting our foot down and saying we won't do that because this will mean and explaining the consequences to them. Um, I think one of them and, and this was this beautiful publication that that we did together, Sabrina, was this this, well, we need to train our animals for their husbandry behaviors because this will reduce their stress. Um, and, and us being, you know, these, these know-it-all trainers, they, you know, everybody's like, well, why do we have to train them to do this? And, um, and why do we have to train them to do this? We said, because it's better for the animals. They're, they're, they, they're not as stressed. And they said, well, do you know that? And we said, yes, of course we can see it on them. We know that. But scientifically we had no proof that this was true. Um, so then basically what we would do is then we, we took all those blood samples, right. From the, from the, before the animals were trained for voluntary bloods up to the time that they were then trained for the voluntary bloods. And then we measured the cortisol levels of all of the samples comparing for voluntary or involuntary blood sampling. And the results did it right there. I mean, it was a threefold decrease in stress and cortisol levels and stress when the animal was trained for the voluntary bloods. And, um, and that was really great. Then we could finally prove, you know, this to, to everybody that training the animal to voluntarily do these behaviors, because what does it do? It gives the animal choice, right? They have control, you know, when you, you take a, a you know, a, um, you force an animal for a blood sample, the animal has to be restrained for a marine mammal it has to be taken out of the water. And then, um, and then you train it to do that. And, and it's their choice to say, no, I can, I can be here so I can leave any time. So then their, their stress level is lower. And, um, and I think from that publication has, has, has always had big effects for a lot of people in trying to prove this. And we've always shared that publication saying you use this as a guidance to say that this really does help. Um, and it makes a difference in the animal's lives. And, um, and I think that that is, is something that over time 
Also, because I think that we look at the the welfare, the, the animals were sick less, less animals were dying, you know, and these animals are worth so much because once you have animals trained for these types of advanced research projects, it's not so easy just getting another one to do it. It takes a huge amount of time. And so, so basically making sure that these animals are strong and healthy and willing to continue to do these, these things um, through, through training um, provides a lot more interesting data and consistent data for the researchers. So I don't know if you agree, do you think that's true? But that's kind of the way I've seen it is that we've been able to factually baby steps prove to everybody that it does make a difference. It makes it right. Your data is more solid. Your animal wants to participate and we can do more and more research without the animal having a behavioral breakdown or without the animal getting sick. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you and I've always worked on that together and have the same philosophy and um, you know, and, and it is true that for many things also we need to like, show me the data, right. It's kind yeah. of like, show me the evidence. Um, and sometimes the evidence um, or the arguments that we put forth are not necessarily the ones directly because it's the right thing to do for the animals or the ethical thing to do, but it's because it has economic or other sorts of implications. And sometimes that is, you know, your um, convincing point, right? But yep. so ultimately, you know, we want to do the right thing. We want to do it because it's in the best interest of the animal. And of course, yeah, it's almost like a no-brainer, right? That uh, they the animals would enjoy it a lot more yeah. doing the things themselves rather than having things forced upon them. So that choice and control that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So perhaps, you know, we can talk a little bit. Um, so research training seminars, we have done one every two, three years. We're recording this in 2021, COVID time still. So, but we are talking about um, a research training law and ethics seminar probably in 2022 which also marks 25 years yeah uh, yeah so that would be a wonderful you know celebration get together of you know past and uh, present but also future directions uh, constantly yes. evolving as you have alluded to already in the podcast um so stay tuned if you're interested in research training uh, we'll be putting out some uh, more information in the beginning of the year and uh, if you're listening to it, then uh, just uh, reach out. And Kirsten, can you tell us a little bit more about these uh, animal training working groups, about DASA and EASA? What do these groups, what are the aims and what are the activities? Yeah, well, it started out really. I mean, if I go way back, it, it actually, as I said, I, I worked at the zoo and, it's, and I, I, I was really shocked by how animals were managed behaviorally and just on a daily basis the just shifting animals was it was you know using fire hoses and and just there was so much positive punishment that was present in the daily care of these animals um you know and then if you had a sick animal the amount of stress it was put under if you had to take care of it adding to the fact that this animal was already sick it just it just surprised me very much and and so i asked and thank God I had, I had a boss that was really understanding and, and said, you know, I would really like to, because I could just see that the keepers wanted it. They just needed the knowledge. They just, so they had it all there. They just didn't know how to put it all together. And they didn't realize certain things that they were doing have, were either having positive or negative effects on their daily interactions with the animals. Um, and so I, I asked if we could do this, um, and it was funny because in the beginning, I also had to fight in the zoo about being able to train the animals because it was, you're going to train the wild out of the animals. You're going to have a bunch of, 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 of um, tame dogs and all these, you know, and it was really having to fight to be able to improve the welfare of the animal because nobody believed that training would be good for the animals. And, and so in, in that aspect, we actually had to do a bunch of little tiny research projects to prove to the management that no, this isn't it. And, and I basically asked for time for two projects. One was let's train these animals that are, that are stereotypic or animals that are not active in their exhibits. And let's start training them and see if we see an increase in their natural behavior, or if we see animals that are more subdued and if we say quote tame 
And um, and basically what it, it proved was that, no, we had animals that had increased behavioral diversity and we were seeing more natural behavior. We were seeing more active animals. They were using their entire habitat. They were socially active. They were so. So and this is what we wanted. So suddenly you were seeing the animal that all our guests were supposedly paying to see, um, including their behavior. The next one was then trying to convince using the public that if I could convince the zoo that if we train the animals, the guests would stay longer in the zoo, which quote means more money. <laughs> and it was going into their shoes. How can I prove this? If they, if they know that the guests are there longer, they'll pay more, they'll use more money. And then I can probably get approval to actually start getting people to train the animals. And that's what we did is we did training sessions throughout and we did questionnaires and we asked the people what they thought regarding the, the training and was this a good thing or was this a bad thing? And did they learn anything? And we chose animals that were, that were different. We did one with the sea lions and that was very typical, but then we did tapers and, and people were shocked. I mean, they were, they, we had people asking, I didn't know that they even had a brain. Seriously. They said this and they, and, and, you know, that, and, and it was little things of teaching them to go on a scale so we could weigh them. And, and, so we did training sessions with the tapers, with the red pandas, with the sea lions, and then with the manatees. And, uh, and then we had different questions asked. And then we found, and then basically the feedback from that gave me the approval from management that I could start to establish a course. Because for me, it was really that the keepers had to do the training because they know the animals. And so we started with just doing that. And it was just regarding what just with Odin Suzu, which is where I worked. Um, and then the first couple of times we ran the course, the other zoos, Denmark being so small and all the zoos having a very close connection, the word started to get out. So other people started asking if they could join. Um, and so then that's really then when I went to Deza and I said, you know, what let's pull this out why why because now suddenly training was coming and i was and i saw people that they were just taking whistles and clickers and they just started training animals but they had no idea regarding the theory behind it and if we want to use training to actually improve animal welfare we need to make sure that we're doing it right because otherwise it can be just as punishing as not doing it um and, and so that was my other fear was that I found out that a lot of it was happening, but people didn't really quite understand what they were doing. And it not only was dangerous for the animals and their welfare, but it was also dangerous for the keepers because they didn't understand how frustration was built. And when you start training animals that can be dangerous, um, the consequences that can happen from that. So, so then we were able to get approved through the Danish Association of Zoos and Aquariums to establish a, a, a course for all Danish zookeepers. And then that's where that started. And then we ran that and that's now been, that's a, the first one started in 2009, I think so. And, um, and we still, it's almost now become standard for all the Danish zoos, the Danish, the Deza zoos that their staff has to go through this course, which is really wonderful to think about that, that they're seeing that as standard and they're also requiring it on CV. So if people want to get hired, if you have it on your CV, then it's, it's a definite plus. Yeah, that's wonderful because it's yeah. just like this, you know, we, we have a certain education, like you're a marine biologist and, you know, you have a master's and a PhD and I'm a psychologist and I'm my master's in animal studies. And now I'm doing my PhD in psychology, but it's like, in this field, you know, you constantly have to have almost this continued personal development and whether it's like learning the theory of training or, or something else. Um, and some of it, of course, is really quite uh, fundamental. Like you say, you know, you need to understand what it is that you're doing in your daily life, your body language, how you clean around the animals, what are the positive or negative effects in your relationships uh, yes. with animals. So that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that was really nice. And so yeah. when we got that going, and that was in cooperation with Annette Peterson from Copenhagen Zoo, um, then we went to IAZA. We went to the European. And at that point, they were we had a lot of negativity. I mean, there were a lot of people yelling at us saying that we were this was absolutely the worst thing we could possibly do and that we were destroying animals by doing this. And, um, and training and is really kind of like... I remember I had to use words like interaction, yes. uh, play, because yeah. word training made, meant circus. When it meant circus. Through yes. hoops and, um, and I love how you talked about training the wild out of animals. And, and of yeah. course, living in a zoo is pretty wild. 
And yes. so, uh, yeah, so I can imagine having to go through that with um, in, in a different association again for people. Yeah, and, and exactly. And with the AZA, you're talking about multicultural, you know, it's a lot of different cultures and, and opinions. And and so, but we were able to get the EEP uh, uh, group on it. And that was really great. Um, and so then we actually established the first European um, European level behavior and training course. And, and the whole thing is, and these courses are great because it's actually really only four days, but these four days for the days of course anyway is spread out over almost a month and a half. Um, and they actually have to take the, it's, it's, so it's not just the theory. We go, we go very systematically through theory and then methods and then techniques, but at the same time, they have to train an animal. So it's not just, and it's that same thing. I remember Ken Ramirez telling me one day, you know, he said, well, you can read a book on how to fly a plane, but it doesn't mean that you can go out and fly it after you've read the book. And I think that is so much it with training is you can, it is psychology. It's all psychology and you can go and read a book on how to do it. But once you get in front of an animal, you're still not going to know how to apply these different, these different techniques and methods. So and so the, the point of the courses was actually to have these people try out on an animal that they could work with easily and one that wasn't going to kill them if they made a mistake. <laughs> you know? um, where, so, so, and usually we've used a lot. We've used anything from um, hamsters to gerbils, mostly rodents to, to rats, um, uh, mice. And, and then, and they, they have to train certain behaviors um, and they, and the, there's tests and there's exams and all of this stuff. So, but it's really fun. And it's, it's been, what's been amazing is to see the people that have been forced on this course by their supervisors <laughs> have no desire whatsoever to learn this. Um, and, and, um, and there's been a couple, I remember we got two sent that, that it was for elephants. They train elephants. Well, they worked with elephants and they're, their uh, curator had sent them and said that they had to learn how to do this. And they came and they were really mad. I mean, these guys had been elephant keepers for many, many years and were set in their ways. And, you know, this training was a bunch of, you know, BS. And, and it was so funny to see them in the end, actually, after they had trained a mouse to do these certain things and how much they fell in love with their mice and how they kept them for years after and how I would get monthly updates and how it changed their relationship to elephants completely, you know, and, and their whole idea, it was really great. Um, you know, and another, another guy that was sent and he was like, I don't understand why the course is four days. I mean, behavior is behavior. Can't we talk about it in an hour? You know, and, and then by the time we hit the end of the course, he was like, but I still don't know anything. I still don't know anything. And that was, and that was just, then, you know, I, oh, this is great. You know, then you've got these people excited and they're really out there making a difference, you know? So yeah, that's, it's nice. It's fun. I love it. And I think also, and that's such an important message that, that kind of shown through for me also is that we do lots of different workshops all over the world for, you know, chicken workshop, gerbil workshop, rat yeah. workshops. And not always are these animals actually being brought home or, you know, the end for these animals are not always so great no. in the pursuit to learn a certain skill. So, yeah. you know, that they are, that these animals, I know that, you know, from one of the PhD courses I, I um, experienced in Denmark with the, and the training um, that, you know, there's the whole thing around caring for the animals. It's not yeah. just skill training no. uh, for training specifically, but also how do you care for the gerbils yeah. or for the other animals and, yeah. you know, making sure that they're comfortable and that they have good housing. So that's just such an important aspect that shines through. And, uh, and also that, you know, obviously the more, you know, you know, the more, you know, that, you know, so little, right. Yeah. That's yes. like this thing, <laughs> as you are in this job for longer and longer, uh, you are, I guess you get a lot more humble also about all those things. And I, I was just, I was just going to say the same thing. I think it's extremely humbling. If you really are, are doing it for the right reasons, it's a very humbling job and you just become more and more of, I, I, there's so much more I need to learn. You know. yeah yeah and it's also you become at least i've become more and more um 
it's about like I wonder, you know, like mm-hmm. nothing seems to be uh, out of the realm of uh, just wondering and curiosity of how is that for other animals or in this world. So, and I love the the mice. Um, I just I was scribbling here, like you don't have to be big, uh, you know, to make a big difference because yes. clearly those little creatures make massive. Uh, yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So, you know, we're almost coming to the end of the podcast and you've talked about, you know, of course, training, having this and learning broadly as such an important aspect of care and welfare. Uh, Do you have some like nuggets of wisdom you want to share with regards to caring for animals or practical skills for people to think about as they, you know, continue in their career or start their careers? Yeah, I mean, wow. You know, I could use days on that one, but no, I'm just kidding. I think, I think for me, I think one of the one things that I really like to try and and promote out to people is the message I want to get across is that remembering that training an animal and training animals is a cooperation. It is a two-way communication. And that you have to be paying attention because when you open that road, really using positive reinforcement, and if it's done correctly, then you are opening that road for that animal to communicate directly back to you. And you need to be aware and watching what the animal is communicating. So I think sometimes people get lost in it sometimes and they forget that in operant conditioning, that is based on the fact that there's an operator. There is an operator steering the system. And I am sometimes I, I see people forgetting and thinking that the trainer is the operator and that's not how it works In operant conditioning. It's the animal. That's the operator. It's the animal that's choosing that, that, that was a good consequence. I want to do that again, or that was a bad consequence. I don't want to do that again. And so it's the animal that's the operator. And if the animal is choosing not to do it again, that means we as the trainer have to change the environment or change the training methodology or techniques that we're doing to help the animal understand so that they do want to do it. And so that it's us that it's responsible for making sure that the animal is comfortable and understanding what it's supposed to be doing and creating that motivation for the animal to continue. To me, that's, that's always my biggest thing that I try and, and help people is make sure. And when the animal communicates back, when the animal refuses to do something, respect that because that's the animal communicating and that's a beautiful thing i think that is the absolute most wonderful thing is when an animal looks at me and says no (laughs) i kind of go yeah what (laughs) and then i'm like okay so then you have to then you have to what do i have to do to make this fun for the animal how do i tweak it so that it's comfortable and the animal is okay now everything's great now i really want to do this again right and i think that is that's probably um anyway, for me that I'm always trying to remember. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You and I have given these examples so many times. I remember in one of the training seminars in in Copenhagen that we did, where you were talking about something along the lines, like talking to the public, like, would you like it if I would do that to you? Would you? Yeah. (laughs) This sort of kind of, you know, we have, we know we have to be careful putting ourselves in the shoes of others, you know, other animals, but still, you know, there's a lot of things that make common sense in the way yeah. that you probably wouldn't like that either, right? So, yeah, so I thought that was really funny. Yeah. Uh, I wish I had that on video, but I'm yeah. sure I wasn't filming at the time, but that's still, do you? Next time. Next yeah. time. Excellent. So, Kirsten, before we say goodbye, do you have a story? It could be a, an interesting finding. It could be a story yeah. close to your heart. Anybody you want to share? We already heard about Loka, but maybe. Yeah, I have I have one. And I think that's it's because also, I mean, we didn't I also work with gray seals and, and I work with male gray seals and and um, and we work free contact with these guys. They're very large. They're very big. Um, and also only working with males um, can be a challenge. And I think, again, that's where when we work operant conditioning, we are always making sure that these they, they don't have a very high frustration level. Um and, and we need to be very careful in working with them and reading their behavior. So we're always making sure the environment around them is, is, that, uh, is comfortable for them. And, and I've always very much, as, as I just said, try to, if they are telling me they don't wanna do something, then finding out why do they not wanna do it. Um, and I think 
the, the story that I'm about to tell really tells the, the importance of positive reinforcement because what happens when you use positive reinforcement too is you gain the animal's trust in such situations that when the animal is in distress, it will look to you for help. Where in using negative reinforcement and punishment, if some, if some reason there is, the animal is under distress, it will flee from you because it doesn't have that relationship. It doesn't have that positive history, that positive reinforcement history. And this happened to me um, one day by accident when I was training um, our large, he's 200 kilos, male gray seal for a blood sample. And we, our lab is actually next to a road. And I was, he was on with his nose on a target and, and holding and um, I had, I was straddling him. So I was standing up above him with a leg on each side. And I had just put this very long needle that you need to do into his back to train him for this. And right as I put the needle in, two scooters crashed right outside the gate of where our gate is and made this insane crashing noise, right? I mean, it was so terrifying for us both. And he had this big needle in his back. And I, you know, and I jumped and he jumped and I immediately, of course, flew off to the side because I was straddling him and I wasn't sure how he was going to react. And he just looked up, spun around and looked at me and then put his nose back on the deck. Like, what am I supposed to do? And, and really looking at me. And so, so I, I could go over, take the needle out of his back and immediately sent him to the water, which is where his safety was. So, and I thought, I, you know, I, I did, I got tears in my eyes after that because it made me realize that God, when he, this giant animal was scared and uncertain instead of what he could have totally done, if I had ever had any kind of negative reinforcement history with him flown around and bit me since I was standing right over his back, but instead he flew around and just looked at me and put his head on the back on the deck, asking me, where do, where do I go? What do I do? And that, that will, I will carry it with me always that story. That's just wonderful. That's just so beautiful. This connection, this trust, and you yeah. know, like you're, you're calm, you know, we are together here. Yeah. So what's the next thing? That's just beautiful. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. was really nice. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kirsten, for coming onto the podcast from surreal killer whales yeah. <laughs> you know, into training and research and making, you know, changes for animals, hopefully both in the wild and also in human care and the importance of training and, and really considering the broader relationship uh, that we have with animals and, uh, and having a good fun time and a trusting time together. So thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and looking forward to seeing you hopefully in 2020. Gosh, I hope so. 2022, I should say. 2022. Yeah. I hope so. I hope so. And thank you for letting me be here. This was very fun. Absolutely. Thanks. Bye. Yes. Thank you so much again for a wonderful podcast, another end of a podcast here. And of course, as you know, well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself to be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And PAUSE is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get the education and tools you need so you and your animals can flourish. So if you feel inspired, follow the link in the podcast description to become a pause member today.